Now I'd like to introduce Dr. Michael Crow. Michael Crow became the 16th president of Arizona State University in 2002. Time Magazine has called him one of the nation's 10 best college presidents. Previously, he was executive vice provost and professor of science and technology policy at Columbia University. He's the author of books and articles relating to the design and analysis of knowledge enterprises, technology transfer, sustainable development, and science and technology policy. He's also my boss, so please give him a warm welcome to Mr. Michael Crow. Thank you, uh, thank you, Gregory. Here's perhaps the best way to start. I've been thinking about how to best introduce the topic and introduce the person. I think I'll introduce the person first and then move into the topic. And so let me start with who's sitting to my right. Uh, Patrick Soon-Chong is in many ways beyond description. People see him from many different angles. They see him from the angle of being a, a successful university professor at UCLA. They see him as an as a unbelievably successful immigrant who immigrated to the United States from Africa. Uh, they see an um, individual who's been entrepreneurial, who's built businesses. They see a person who dabbles in professional sports here and there and makes things happen here in Los Angeles. They, they see a person who started as a professor and uh, through a number of business ventures uh, became very successful financially. None of those accurately portray Patrick. Uh, and I'm not introducing someone who I met today, I'm introducing someone that I've worked together with over the last several years on a very important set of projects related to all of our futures. And I want to sort of weave my way into that. But I really struggled on how to introduce Patrick to an uh, audi audience of, uh, of general citizenry. And so the best term that I could come up with, believe it or not, and you'll, you might laugh when I tell you this, is uh, meet Batman. And so, uh, and, and here's what I mean. In the, in the Batman uh, uh, movies and comics, there's a guy named Bruce Wayne, and Bruce Wayne is this really uh, successful businessman who's uh, advancing uh, basically law and order and fighting crime and making things happen, and he uses mysterious technologies to make these things happen and so forth and so on. And uh, uh, Patrick's not decided to take his substantial intellectual powers and fight crime. He's decided to help to find a way for us to take our health span, not our lifespan, but our health span, that span that we have in which we can be productive and creative and uh, live with our families and, and uh, advance our society and find a way in which we can expand that health span, move away from the trajectory that we're presently on and find a way that we can do it wherein it doesn't also simultaneously bankrupt us, either individually or organizationally or uh, collectively. So Patrick Soon-Chong is a man who has a massive intellect, devoting his intellect, which is part engineer, part computer scientist, part physician, part scientist, part entrepreneur, bringing all those things together, and is driving toward something that we desperately need in our society, which is a methodological approach based on the integration of science and the integration of technology toward an objective, that being to find a way to make your personal and your family's health span prolonged in a way where it is as seamless and as much a part of your life 
on a day-to-day basis without being intrusive as possible. And to do that, you have to understand what's involved. You have to get a glimpse of what Patrick has been constructing in a, in a, uh, a very elaborate, very sophisticated, yet unbelievably elegant, elegant methodological approach to changing the fundamentals of healthcare in the United States. So before I ask Patrick a question, it might surprise some of you to know that we live in a country which uh, spends more per person on our healthcare than any other industrialized uh, nation in the world. Uh, we spend more on research related to healthcare and health outcomes than pretty much all other, comp- all other countries on the planet combined, yet we're not performing at a very significant level. We're not in the top dozen in terms of outcomes, while at the same time having unbelievable science, unbelievable medical innovations, unbelievable computer uh, capabilities that have been developed. And all of this sits out there in a morass of unintegrated, unlinked, silo-driven organizations and systems that are at the moment holding us back dramatically, holding us back from health outcomes, uh, holding us back from making it affordable for everyone, holding us back from the kind of social and economic and cultural changes that one can stimulate if we could finally move away from living in a society where uh, if you have a particular cancer, you have a low probability of, of being positively responsive to a particular drug, but we don't know that you will or won't be positively responsive to that particular drug. So therefore, we'll give you all the drugs and charge everyone for all those drugs and charge you for all those drugs. And somehow we think that that is the way to advance medicine. So let me start, Patrick, with your, your motivation. What, what, what drives you to take on a, an unbelievably monumental problem, enhancing or transforming health care and health outcomes, what is your driver? What, 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 what makes you drive towards that as an objective when you have entire governments attempting to work on this kind of problem unsuccessfully up to this point? What drives you? Well, you know, I'm the best way to answer, first of all, thank you for... I'm not sure about my, my, my mother thanks you, my yeah. wife thanks Batman, Batman's good. <laughs> um, you know, in all seriousness, I, I think it drives me from a position of a physician. And, and I think what's very painful as a physician is you see um, the potential of actually a patient having a different outcome if only the provider or the system knew what to provide to that patient. And I would see this over and over and over and again. And well, so give an example just so. Well, let's talk about pancreatic cancer, for example, and for whatever reason, God knows why, I've been fascinated by the pancreas since uh, high school. So, uh, but it's, and maybe I've been fascinated because it's the most perplexing, difficult organ, um, whether it's pancreatitis, whether it's diabetes, whether it's pancreatic cancer, it's all because of the pancreas. And if you look at pancreatic cancer, you would think a patient with pancreatic cancer uh, spread throughout the lungs and the liver and, and the bone the life expectancy for that is two months. And if you were to ask a doctor, and I did this test uh, three years ago, uh, which drug would you give uh, this patient? And I won't name the drug because I don't want to be controversial, but there's a drug in the market that has a billion dollars in sales and said this drug. 
Then I asked these doctors, what is the response rate of that drug for this condition in the package insert, which is a little package insert you get when you get the drug, and not many people knew that. So I said, well, if I told you, and I pulled out the package insert, for this particular condition, this particular drug, which most of you are giving, has a zero, it's in the insert says a zero percent response rate. So if you ask um, about pancreatic cancer, you would see that in this patient, it's no wonder that two months, most uh, patients would uh, die from this disease. And what was frustrating to me at that point in time, we had developed a drug, not because it was our drug, but developed a theory of what we understood how cancer cells worked, whether it's pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer. And we had a patient, patients, who went on that drug, had complete response, meaning no evidence of disease, within a month. And to this day, as I sit here and speak now, we have still patients alive, still without evidence of the disease and pancreatic cancer, having had it spread throughout their lung, still free of the disease six years. So why and what is that difference? Is it, you know, um, so what drove me was, you know, um, I would get calls and I would actually uh, make sure that these patients go to see that doctor and that doctor. And I said, this is not it's inappropriate that we do not have the information at the fingertips, both for the doctors as well as for the patient, to empower them for the most information they can have to make the best decisions for the outcomes. So, that's so it's important. incomplete information, <clears throat> poor decisions, generalized decisions, generalized treatments. That's, that's what we're trying to figure out how to get past. And what we faced with is what I call qualitative care, you know, when... Um, when we were in, I was in medical school, there was not enough information other than what I could touch, listen, uh, tap, and, and make some decisions. What's exciting now is with the genomic medicine, there's a thousand drugs now in develop, development, and we have the ability to inter, uh, really uh, identify at the molecular level what ails you. The problem is this is untold amounts of information it's impossible for a doctor practicing just to keep the, the doors open to be able to compute and keep up with this incredible amount of data flowing in so not only is it incomplete information is absence of what I call cognitive support to make the right decision mm -hmm. so what drives me is that the opportunity lost not just for the patient not just for our country but really for mankind if such a system was not put in place to drive this information to the point of care uh, to, for the betterment of the outcome for the patient and drive what I call quantitative molecular-based medicine. So as we've gone from the sort of the history of medicine, which was qualitative and uh, often subjective and, and uh, often based on physician working with individual patient based on visual and other types of uh, sensors and indicators, your assessment is that we're now to the point where we have the technological platform, the computational platform, the decision enhancement platform to integrate these things together in a way where we can move to this notion of quantitatively based, molecularly uh, 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 operating level uh, medicine. That we're at that point now and that, we've, and that you're working to try to break down the barriers to make this happen. What's been frustrating, we've been at that point actually for five years. 
so why is this not happening? Why are we still getting these terrible outcomes, higher cost, terrible access, um, as you just mentioned, with really, really the poorest, for some of the poorest outcomes on the, on the planet? <clears throat> so when you analyze this issue, what are the barriers? So if you take medicine as three buckets, the first barrier is this knowledge barrier and the knowledge barrier is exploding every day. The second barrier is the delivery barrier, and the third barrier is the payment barrier. So let's just... Delivery as in the healthcare provider. Correct, right. in, in terms of how, does, uh, how do you as a patient have your records from the clinic to the lab, to the x-ray, to the hospital, back to the home? <coughs> How's information flowed? So if you look at each of these elements in its own right. On the knowledge side, we're gaining more knowledge now. I, I not only predict no, that we're getting more knowledge in the last five years than in the last 50 years in medicine. Knowledge meaning scientific of, discoveries, breakthroughs in tools. Correct, of, right. of information that could right. improve your health. However, that knowledge, and the RAND study has shown, that that knowledge transferred into patients takes an average of 17 years. For a cancer patient, we don't have that time. And specifically, if you don't, you actually know that you have months. So how do you break the knowledge barrier into the delivery barrier? When you get into the delivery barrier, you have what are called totally uncoordinated care with absence of transfer of information um, and actually decision support that is totally poor. And then when you get a payment barrier, there's no what we call CPT code. When I, as a doctor and, or, or doctors, the only way doctors get reimbursed is actually to treat you when you're sick. There's no reimbursement to the doctor to keep you out of the hospital, keep you at home, and keep you healthy. There's no healthy code. So there is a code for illness. So there's perverse incentives that the only way the doctor can get reimbursed is to do as much as he can to you when you're sick and actually get no reimbursement to keep you healthy. And on the integrated side, you as a patient, there's no way of actually capturing your data and actually having a continuum of knowledge throughout the lifespan or health span of a patient. And on the knowledge side, there's no way of transferring knowledge to, to the patient in real time. Taken together, we have a great healthcare system <laughs> that we have no knowledge transfer, we have lack of integration, and we have actually lack of incentive to pay for better outcomes. So I started breaking down this problem into, wow, this is a massive problem, and you need to integrate this as a single solution. And the big solution we can actually attack versus cancer. So this is what we've been doing. As an example, in a sense. So cancer's not the end, it's the pathway. Yeah, so the cancer is a pathway to the fact that if we can address illness, acute illness, and actually try and fix a system in a, in a state of emergency in acute illness, we can actually fix it in the, in, in the state of what we call wellness. So if I, I looked at this, okay, if these are the three buckets in terms of the process of the system, I then start thinking of the three buckets of a human being. And there's three buckets. There's basically wellness when we're born and we're well and young. And then there's acute illness when it's deathly ill. And then there's something in between when you have hypertension or diabetes or chronic disease, which I call wellness. So if you have Ill wellness, wellness, and illness, 
uh, our job is to try and mitigate you all the way from illness to wellness and wellness to wellness. So the best way to do is, is, to, st <laughs> is to start out somewhere where attention will be, will, be, will be gotten. And when you started looking at cancer, um, first of all, the aging population, the, the incidence of not only cancer, there's two million new diagnoses a year. But the scary statistic, which I don't want to scare this audience, but unfortunately it's true, that 32% of times, 32% time a patient that has cancer is getting the wrong treatment in this country. Wrong diagnosis, wrong treatment, overdosing, uh, inappropriate protocol, and that has to stop. So if we can stop that, uh, and on top of that add 21st century medicine and have quantitative measurements of outcomes, we can make a change in the entire system. Isn't it fair to say to some extent that some drugs which work for small numbers of patients uh, uh, are then viewed as hopeful for those which they're not going to work for and in some ways then are individual treatments for some forms of cancer got out ahead of our overall way of thinking about how to tackle cancer? See, what we would do before, uh, we had these drugs called cytotoxic drugs, meaning drugs that are poisons that would just kill anything inside, normal cell, cancer cell, and the pharmaceutical industry, of which I was an executive in the pharmaceutical industry, had at our, at our disposal these poisons, drugs, that would kill these cancer cells called cytotoxics. So then, for breast cancer or lung cancer, you'd give this drug, and you'd hope to capture 20% of patients, which means 80% of these patients would get injured rather than helped. The other fallacy that was going on is that Arbitrarily, we've created this concept of you're a breast cancer patient, you're a lung cancer patient, you're a prostate cancer patient, when from a cell's perspective, these actual cancers would cross-react uh, regardless of from which uh, anatomy originated if you started actually diving down into the molecular mechanism of what caused that cancer. All of a sudden, you found that a drug used for breast cancer had exact same activity for this patient with stomach cancer because it had the same molecular pathway. How would you find that out? And that's one of the opportunities now with what we call the Genome Project, the Cancer Genome Project, which I'll talk a little bit about if you, if you like. Well, so maybe one way to put it into perspective, uh, if you look at this, if the audience will look at this uh, Zocalo chart behind me, you see the little shapes and think of each of them as a component unit. Uh, think of each of these little boxes as it could be a methodological approach to computation associated with genomic medicine. It could be an imaging technology. It could be a communication technology for sending signals from your body to a computer that could inform your physician or yourself what you're up to. It could be a decision tool. It could be a biological tool. It could be any, just imagine all those kinds of things in these individual boxes. And uh, Patrick, I know that the last few years you have been uh, either through philanthropy or through business investment uh, investing in dozens and dozens and dozens of these boxes that stand out there each independently, unconnected, and you've been finding ways to connect them together into uh, something that uh, I know you have referred to, and I understand after listening to you, uh, the rocket. Uh, that is a mechanism, a, a mechanism of integration of a technology uh, around all these things together. So, so what is your strategy and your plan and so many different pieces that 
on their own, they can't be integrated, but you can see how they should be integrated, and you're able to find ways through both, as I said, investment and philanthropy to connect these things together. Well, so if you look at then the way to really transform healthcare is to ask the question, um, where are you as a patient mostly? Firstly, where you want to be and where are you mostly? You're actually mostly at home. 80% of the time, you're at home from a perspective of an illness visiting a doctor. Then you're in the clinic, and then you're in the community hospital, then you're hopefully, or not, but in a tertiary center. The connectivity of that in, in a continuum of keeping records of you as a patient is impossible unless, and this is what, what's exciting, what they call the convergence of technology, of what we call the wireless technology. If I was to say to this audience five years ago, 3G, 4G, LTE, um, wireless, uh, you would understand, but now with YouTube and apps <laughs> and your phone, you truly understand the capabilities of actually getting information into the cloud and rapidly down to you. So we conceived many years ago... What Everybody knows what the cloud is. It, it's not the white thing in the sky. <laughs> it's this ubiquitous computational platform which is basically almost freely available for any level of computational problem solving. So, so we concluded many years ago that the smartphone, the iPad, would be the most amazing device to give you ubiquity of information all the way to the doctor, which means that we, if we could capture what I call the human signal engine, which is your vital signs, um, no matter where you are, in real time, and then send that up to, up to the cloud seamlessly, where you did not need to input that, and that automatically filtered into a record, just continuously monitored. Blood you, sugar, blood, blood pressure, sugar, blood pressure weight, weight, everything. That would be one element of capturing, at least proactively, um, your dynamic monitoring of your health. That's great in this bucket of wellness, and it's actually pretty good in this bucket of wellness, as I told you about. But it's not that great when you get into illness, because when you get into illness, we really want to know at the molecular level what's going on with you, because we can today. Uh, within this year, it'll cost $1,000 less than a CAT scan or an MRI scan to do what we call a complete genomic analysis of your blood, a single blood test, that will actually identify with quite amazing precision of what's going on that allowed us to be informed. So maybe I should divert a little bit into what this rocket ship is, because I'll give you the, 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 the enormity of the challenge of what a genome uh, is, because most people wouldn't really understand that. Just to make sure everybody understands the rocket ship as metaphor, it's the assembly of a range of technologies together that would allow uh, an integrated approach to your particular individualized or personalized uh, medical uh, enhancement. So in an infrastructural way, what that rocket ship organization has, do has done is, is created a, what I call a health information highway, an infrastructure that actually will take data at such large speeds into a supercomputer that actually drives it instantaneously all the way up to the doctor's office onto the iPad that's integrated backwards into the supercomputer of all your dynamic analysis of all the human signal engine and created what we call this machine learning tool and taken all the data 
of the knowledge of mankind about that particular problem, integrated that as a rate only to this patient at that point in time, and create what I call a wisdom database. So here's everything we know about diabetes. And everything we know about this cancer for this yes. particular patient, right. and compared to all other patients with that same cancer and the outcomes, and create not a database, but wisdom. And if we can create wisdom and then shoot wisdom up into your iPhone at the point of time that you're seeing your doctor, <laughs> that sounds crazy, but it's like what we're doing. And that's what we've actually done. Uh, what I'm excited to say, we're going to announce this, and a little tease here, we're going to announce this in October in Washington. And if you can create this wisdom database uh, for every patient, regardless of where they are, you then have the ability to give the most underserved patient in Bangladesh or this country equal care to the most wealthy patient. And we as a country could then really export uh, health and innovation and wisdom uh, as an opportunity to share for the rest of the world. So that was the infrastructure, so right. to speak. Uh, let, let me just make sure everybody understands it. So what, what Patrick's talking about is not a theoretical model. So what will be announced in October is not a theoretical model of if you did this, if you did that. It's the actual first generation integrated technology platform to perform the functions. That's why each of these things that have been invested in, I think it might be useful if you picked one or two, just imagine these as some of your boxes, just pick one or two of the well, investments so that, that you so, made. Well, so, you know, the investments have been made firstly in philanthropically, and I think because yes. we're in LA, you could sort of see we actually created um, at St. John's Hospital uh, uh, on this 20-acre site uh, and owned by the nuns, unaffiliated with any university, and only nuns can actually bring together 20 acres of land uh, in Santa Monica. And Everyone's afraid of them. <laughs> <laughs> and what it was, it's a whole wonderful place because it's a mission of caring. So we invested there so that that could be actually the kernel of the demonstration for the country. So that's, that's your middle box. That's the middle box of actually a place where we can actually bring uh, care for patients. Then there was another box that we had to actually invest in called the California Nano Systems Institute, where we actually started investing in technology, and that's why I'm executive director of the Wireless Health, to understand all the technology that actually captured the, what are called the human signal engine, as well as build a supercomputer that actually can compute large amounts of information. Then I invested in, in an organization called the National Coalition for Health Integration, because we needed to build a software that was agnostic to anybody's software of electronic medical records. This was my greatest fear uh, when I've been presenting at Washington, that we will create medical bridges to nowhere by funding the inappropriate programs. Because there was the Non-open, rigid, Non-open, rigid, right. proprietary software mm -hmm. put into hospitals, put into doctors. UCLA has a thousand programs, CEDAS has different programs. You can't get your records. They don't even talk to each other. So knowing that you needed to create an agnostic software system that is open to the country and allow an integration and, and channel what I call the middleware, that was another investment. Then we needed to invest on the fiber. Now, the amount of data needed for um, 500 cancer patients in terms of the human genome per day is equivalent to about 30 times the download of Facebook per day. There is no such fiber infrastructure that can allow that kind of movement of data. So there was another organization called the National Lambda Rail, which was used by NASA uh, for information flow. 
and we invested and funded that to create a fiber infrastructure across the nation to tie all the hospitals and medical centers together to supercomputing centers. It's the fastest existing platform. Correct. And then we needed to sort of figure out how in this real world do we really address the real world of the insurance companies, the payers, the providers, and the knowledge system to make them all work together. And this is where I worked with Michael at ASU and created, we created together with Michael's vision and, uh, to this, the Health Transformation Institute, or HTI, to address the real world pay payment system. So it's a very complex mix of public-private uh, mixture of, of computer scientists, mathematicians, physicians, uh, clinicians, insurance companies, uh, to, to make this all work. And it's, it's been now close in my, in my years now, we've been at this for about seven to eight years now, uh, full time at this, and I'm so glad that um, in October we're gonna announce this. But I think it may be useful, Michael, if I explain to this audience what a cancer genome actually does. It'd be good to, to explain that, and then that might express why it's so complex. And why it's so difficult. Yes. Yeah, because I try to figure out, okay, when you say human genome and cancer genome, what does that even mean to you or me or anybody? And the best way to think about this, and I, I've used this analogy, and it's actually been well received because it's easy to understand. If you picture in your mind now the planet, then picture in your mind the countries, or the continents, and then picture in your mind the countries, and then the states, and then the streets, and then the houses. And now imagine there's three billion houses that fold the planet. That three billion is what we call the base pairs, i.e. the human genome. So the complexity of the human genome, you take these three billion houses and you throw it all on this floor, and you have to line them up one by one, street address by street address, exactly correctly, from street to state to country, and that's called the assembly of the human genome. Because it's an information system. Correct, so, so you take your blood and you have these three billion houses. Now you take the blood, or the sample from the tumor, and you have again these three billion houses and you throw them and you have to line them up and now you compare the two of these three billion to three billion find the one house that's changed color and that's the task of this what you call bioinformatic analysis or within this tumor this red house now has actually duplicated itself ten times and moved to a different city find that city and find out what the, the where it is. Now that you found these houses or these this red house that's called a mutation, that's just not all there is to it because that's just the gene. Now this abnormal gene makes now abnormal proteins. So it's like it's changed the neighborhood. So find the proteins that is affected. After you found the proteins is affected, find the drug that actually can stop that abnormality in the proteins. And give Let that me just to the add, patient. not just in the protein, but in the manifestation of those proteins, which are unique to you. Correct. The individual. And unique. to that, unique to you and to that cancer. That uh, analysis takes nine to 11 weeks to do. Today. Today. So answer this question. Well, nine to 11 weeks all out with the most advanced technology that we have. Correct. So how do you then, and, ben, and, and by the way, after you've given the drug to the patient, after two weeks, it actually changes the house to a different site, 
and change the protein, and you have to repeat that result before you know what drug to give two weeks later. So the question is then, how do you do this for two million people just in the United States? That means 7,000 or 8,000 patients a day when it takes nine weeks to do one patient. And how you do you then actually determine the treatment at the molecular level before treatment begins? So the only way to do this is to create this infrastructure, build a supercomputer, create a way to transmit that information, do the analysis, and do these, create a system that can analyze and find that missing house and missing brick in less than two minutes for one patient. So I'm going to share with you a little bit um, is that we've done that now. We can do one patient in 47 seconds. So that information then can inform the doctor in real time of what drug to give to the patient and create this machine learning tool to inform not only the doctor but the patient and the loved ones and, and anybody else around uh, and, and create what we call a learning system where the power of n equals one of one patient can really affect the learnings of other patients and, and, and really have a, a, a what I call a quantifiable system for treating cancer. So what about going beyond cancer? Where do you, where do you see this all headed as the, as the rocket takes form and as you move to later versions and iterations of it? So this epigenetics or genetics affects heart disease, affects diabetes, uh, it ultimately affects wellness, it affects Alzheimer's, it affects... So it's, it's the infrastructure really for all chronic diseases and as I said, you know, the opportunity to truly uh, prolong life and may at least convert cancer, at least in our lifetimes, to a chronic disease as if it were diabetes. Um, and then actually have your chance to go after what I call the cancer stem cell and then really maybe go after the cure. But you created an infrastructure now to really have a shot at it. What about way back on wellness? I know that some of the boxes that you've been investing in and that you're inter integrating together require the same uh, communication platform, but now you're talking about the patient in their home. I think uh, people would like to hear a little bit more about that. Well, in the patient, the, so, so the whole area of wellness is interesting because wellness is both, both the emotional wellness, uh, physical wellness, and psychological wellness. And if you can now capture your sleep patterns, which you can, capture your weight, capture your nutrition, capture your diet, and then also capture your clinical score, we can actually then create what I call a, a vitality health score about the patient and dynamically monitor that vitality health score in real time, wirelessly, effortlessly, and actually create sharing of that health score with you and your family, your friends, and your doctors. Um, so we're about to implement that as well as, 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 as a wellness tool, uh, which is really the integrated timeline forever um, of like a Dow Jones index of what your health score should be. How many of uh, you would, would like a system where you step on your scale, it communicates to your computer, your watch is tracking your movement, you're tracking all kinds of things, but it is deriving for you a, a score that's telling you, and no one else, if you don't want anyone else, anyone else to know, but at least telling you, how you're doing relative to your individual uh, uh, healthy living or lack thereof, or health promotion or lack thereof. How many of you think that would be useful, just to get a sense? So, so some hesitate, some hesitate, and so and so. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting that they're that, worried that, about right. Dr. No here. Well, it's n no, no. I think you know. I ask myself. Um, I ask my little boy, 
Why is it we'd pay, and it's not about the money, it's not the cost. I think one of the things you're worried is about privacy. And I think one of the most important... How many are worried about privacy? Quite a few, yeah. yeah. And I think the most important thing is to recognize the system is created such that, the, that this is your data, actually. And I think this has been really with, with the flaws when people have created these health um, and wellness programs where, and I won't name names, but you know, there was this Google Health and Microsoft Health and everybody else, and, and, and people worry, rightly so, about privacy. And I think uh, one of the key elements is to say that we truly should um, uh, treasure the privacy and make sure that this is actually your data. The important thing about this, though, is that it's not a health score from a frivolous health score. It's actually a way to actually tie in your clinical data, um, your clinical heart rate, your clinical um, uh, blood glu glucose, so that both you and your provider uh, can actually proactively capture any um, um, variants before anything bad really happens. I think it's the only way we can actually not only get longevity, but actually reduce the cost of healthcare, and in your own self, create a real sense of uh, health and wellness. Uh, and I really meant, uh, as, as Mike talks about health span, I think this is really an opportunity. So this is one of the things that uh, has to be addressed of, of, of why there's a reluctance. The other question um, is, I think, human nature is you'd go out and everybody would be really happy to go buy a, a cappuccino at a, a Starbucks and pay four bucks, but you wouldn't pay two bucks or, 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 or it's not even the cost or go to this extent because it's not instant gratification. And I think the absence of instant gratification of, of seeing something really uh, gratifyingly because your illness is something you don't even feel or see, so, you know, and that's why young people don't take insurance and so one of these boxes is a pleasure giving thing on your iPhone or something well one of the things <laughs> is, is, is really actually uh, creating a competition amongst friends where you know oh, sports right <laughs> and, and right and sharing and yes. and, and gamifying uh, um, your health and I think that's what's yeah. going to be another way to actually induce young people to, to get involved with this so so you're you were trained as a physician you you uh, you are a surgeon, you're a scientist, you're an entrepreneur, you're now working in this unbelievable uh, integrative problem set. To some, they would say, well, this is obvious. Why doesn't it happen? Or why can't you just snap your fingers and, and, and make it happen? What's the barrier? What do you have to, what do you have to overcome? What's the rate limiter for you? Because there's this embedded within the system, there's a lot of wastes there's a lot of um, waste uh, means money going to things that pro probably could be spent on other things. Is that well? Some people's waste is other people's profit, mm -hmm. right? Um, <laughs> uh, and there's um, it's been very frustrating for me. I mean, I don't trust me. We've tried, right? We've been to um, Washington. Um, I've been in the White House, I've been in the Senate, I've been in the HHS. There's not one penny being spent on this I just talked to you about, not one, zero. So we had to actually step up internally um, and, and do this. From a pharmaceutical industry perspective, uh, they don't see, uh, and I think that's going to change now, the upside of actually developing a drug for 100 people 
And um, I think we need to actually recognize that, in fact, there will be subsets of 1,000 people, 10,000 people with this problem, and 100 people that problem, and 100,000. And we need to sort of figure out a system where we actually need to have 20 to 30 or 50 drugs developed a year. So that's one. So that's from insurance companies' perspective, um, they, you know, it's in a funny way, merely a, uh, insurance is not what actually keeps you healthy. Insurance is really a brokerage system. Um, and then from a provider perspective, uh, providers aren't trained to sort of look at it from engineering. They're really just trying to keep the doors open and, and, and give you care. And from a knowledge system perspective, you have the silos of academia, great silos that they are. Don't look at me. No, I exactly why I'm saying great <laughs> silos that they are. I, I, I like what, other than people like Mike trying to actually change the system where there's true crossover between uh, um, basic research, clinical translation, and clinical practice. Very difficult to make these silos change. And then there's this internal competition, you know, within the city even, um, um, and even within the doctors. So there's all these different agendas, right? But if you look back at the big, big picture of what this could mean if we did this right, um, and I'm so excited to say we are, we're about to announce ourselves with uh, the private partners. So we stepped out and worked out and I'll name some partners. We went out to AT&T, we went to Verizon, we went to Bank of America, uh, who all the self-insured, and Intel and, and Hewlett-Packard, and spoke to these partners to come together with us to try and make this work for the nation. And this is what uh, uh, we, we're trying to do now. So why don't we do two more questions before we turn to questions from the audience. And so the first would be, um, you're, you're, you're driven from the heart of a physician how will you know and how will you measure that you're being a better doctor for a larger population than you've treated on your one-on-one -on -one patients in the past? How will you know? Well, I'm excited to say I, in the last year, found out um, a very positive result. So, as I told you, 32% of patients have the inappropriate cancer care today as we speak. So we developed this program, released it, along the nation, 8,000 oncologists are now using it. And inside these 8,000 oncologists, from those that are using it, it's gone from 32% to zero. So I'm very excited about us having moved that along. And how many oncologists are there? So we are we now into about 50%, 30 to 40% of the oncologists uh, in the country right now. And um, after, hopefully after October, and the American Society of Clinical Oncology, called ASCO, has adopted this as the advisor. We've put it on the website of American Cancer Society. If you look up American Cancer Society and you want to know which clinical trial or which is the best, it's, it's there. So soon this will be out, and at least from a cancer perspective. The human genome, uh, we will, we've now completed the analysis of the largest repository in the world, and we'll share some of that results. I don't want to Steal the Thunder of October the 3rd. And so it's exciting. We've actually been able to, as you said, do this rather than talk about it. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about, about California. You know, so so you, you make all these investments. There's got these fantastic companies that have emerged in California and fantastic research institutes like the Nano uh, Institute that you mentioned and 
uh, what we call Eastern California, also known as Arizona, sort of fits into uh, some of that, and so we'll call it emerging California. And so the the uh, talk about why Los Angeles, what you're getting from Los Angeles, uh, you know, why you can incubate this, why this solution will come out of Los Angeles and California as opposed to Washington or New York or Chicago. You know, interestingly enough, I didn't think it would come out of California, as you and I know. I tried actually four years ago and went all the way into Sacramento and actually basically gave up in California. I thought California should and could lead and um, tried in Sacramento and found that... You tried politically. Politically. Right. There was no leadership and actually jumped to Arizona. And that's how I actually met Michael and met uh, Mayor Phil Gordon and said, okay, Arizona is... Mayor of Phoenix. Mayor of Phoenix. And... Uh, nimble enough, fast enough, so that we could do that. So we did start out in Phoenix, and then um, I found the opportunity through St. John's, and there was a very, very, very brave uh, insurance company called Blue Shield of California, who has actually stepped up to actually take this, take this actual first step. And I, again, don't want to uh, break a, a, a news break here because the press has yet to come out. So we found that... Um, it has such a huge population, uh, you know, just the Wilshire Corridor in Southern California is equivalent to the entire population of Arizona, quite literally. Um, yes. Three million people right there. Um, You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right, no, that's not true. It's close. Arizona's five, about 6.7 million, that's right. Right, but the, if you take the... Wilshire and Sunset. Yeah, you take... Yeah, right, <laughs> that's true. If you take L.A. County, we sort of uh, yes. there. So small country. So, you are, so it gave us sufficient scale yet e enough uh, geography that we can actually manage this, but actually show on a bigger scale. So, I'm, but I'm excited. I think we clearly we're working in in in, in Arizona and, and and you know Arizona State with uh, the new medical school that Michael's building here is, is is going to be really I think the cutting edge of innovation in healthcare. We hope. So uh, let's see what uh, people have as questions. One of the big elephants in the room really is the FDA and how the drugs that you may actually facilitate um, and, and, the, and the cost that you associated with uh, bringing these drugs to market. Certainly the current clinical trial paradigm and the current way that we approve drugs is not conducive to the type of infrastructure that you're bringing forward and is changing the world. So what is your thought process around that? I don't know why, but... My personal relation with the FDA has always been fabulous in the sense that, just you know, in my career, uh, when I started this on the injectable drugs, which is really life-threatening, drugs for life-threatening diseases, we got uh, 70 drugs approved in 10 years uh, in terms of ANDAs. So, but you're absolutely correct. We need to work with the FDA in this whole new pathway of uh, adaptive clinical, what you call adaptive clinical trials. What I'm excited, ironically, is at the, in Phoenix, there's the FDA critical path. There's an organization working with Janet Woodcock, I think, who, mm -hmm. who really sees the need to look at molecular-based medicine and transform how drugs are being developed. Uh, so I, I'm hopeful. Uh, that the, the Critical Path Institute is an entity working to try to speed the pathway by which drugs can uh, be approved, particularly when they're of this basis. Correct. They're built on biomarkers and genome mapping and so forth. So. What about rare diseases that are not cancers, uh, lysosomal diseases, other diseases of the brain, neurodegenerative diseases? Where do they fit into your picture? Once we've created this framework, the analysis of the genome will actually not only unveil, but actually show 
whether cancers or non-cancers have similar, not only molecular pathways. You know, so we're looking now, for example, I was just talking to Mike about concussion. There's now some real evidence that uh, there's some people are predisposed if they have concussion or injuries to be predisposed to Alzheimer's disease, etc. Not only the rare diseases, I think what's exciting to me is the issue of, of cancers of, of unknown origin or primaries of unknown origin, which is, and through this ability to mine data now um, for the common good and really in a very um, uh, de-identified way, but capturing huge amounts of information and being able to actually find and pinpoint what the right treatments are, are it's a great opportunity. So, so this is, while cancer is where we started, this is not where, uh, it, it actually, we're also looking at Duchenne's dystrophy, we're looking at lupus, uh, et cetera. So this is going to where- Well, isn't it fair to say, uh, Patrick, that this is a platform, a methodological, integrated methodological approach that will be applicable across a, a wide span of diseases. Correct. We hear a lot about trying to lower healthcare costs, and that seems to me like kind of chasing a dollar in a tornado, to the extent that when you lower costs for a particular malady or cure something, that only means that the patient will live longer and older and get something else like two or three years down the road. And as the number of people in the older category is increasingly higher compared to the number of healthcare providers, it seems impossible that that could ever be caught or ever go the other direction. Could you comment on that? And, and that's exactly the fallacy of what I think the problem is if you start reforming cost reform and, or insurance reform. And I think, unfortunately, I think that's the flaw in the current, uh, and it's not a political statement, it's just how I see as a physician and a scientist that really what we want to do is actually improve your outcomes. And if you can improve your outcomes in a continuous way, not only when you're desperately ill, but improve your outcomes uh, when you're in chronic disease and improve your outcomes and maintain your health in a wellness state, we not only will not only lower costs, you get better access, lower cost, better quality, and higher value. And so that's what we're talking about, transforming. So we know what the what is, Nobody's actually presented the how. And that's what I think has been always the flaw. And that's what, I, when Mike started this whole conversation, what drives me. It's very clear, at least from my perspective, being a physician, scientist, and, and somebody who actually developed drugs on scale for the nation, um, that there was a how, but it was a very complex, integrated how using multidisciplines, mainly not of doctors but of computer scientists, machine vision people, mathematicians, physicists, to bring in how to actually improve the outcomes and proactive monitoring. I have this vision of creating what we call the NORAD of healthcare, where you will be That's monitoring. the North American defense thing from the Cold War days. <laughs> that actually monitor patients for, the, for their good, right, to help them uh, proactively on a one-on-one -on -one, be aware of, the, of, of, of their needs. I think that's the only way we lower costs. If you think about a cell phone 20 years ago, it was about the size of a hero sandwich. Didn't work very well because only about 100 people had one. So the network wasn't there. And it cost 1000 bucks, which is another reason only 100 people had one. And look at cell phones now. It fits in your pocket. You can call anywhere in the world for practically nothing. 
and you can buy one at Walmart for 10 bucks. So instead of a cell phone, talk about a cell. Could the same thing happen with stem cells? Will we see dramatic improvements in stem cell technology? I think the answer is unequivocally yes. You, you talked about this. You could even reveal your own inner secrets about how you heal yourself. He was just telling me this earlier. It's just... Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we, can we get a pancreas at Walmart for 10 bucks in 20 years? And you know, um, so my background, as you may know, is, is stem cells. Uh, maybe you don't, but I was part of the NASA program in, way back uh, in the 1980s, in which we were sending, I was asked to send stem cells up in the shuttle with the idea of, of at least the idea then, was when astronauts got into Mars, we needed to figure out a way to regenerate medicine. So I've been pursuing stem cells since then. And I truly believe, in fact, I th we have some basic evidence of it, that there's a circulating stem cell in your body. Everybody, all of you actually have circulating stem cells, which actually get activated by a site of injury. And when you get the activated site of injury, those stem cells actually replicate and actually become the replacement cells. And, and as I said, I, to Mike, I always told my kids, wherever you go, there you are, um, that, <laughs> that these are the cells. So what's exciting is that now there is no question the ability now to actually identify what we call these pluripotent cells and then convert them uh, at site of entry and inject them. And this will not only happen in our lifetime, we've now developed at CNSI an ability to actually take a truly at the cellular level, make a cut in a cell and insert whatever you want into the cell to create a pluripotent cell. So the answer to that is, yeah, in your lifetime, this can happen. Mike was referring to, I, I ruptured my Achilles. Um, Doing what? <laughs> playing basketball. Yes. Uh, so, um, and I had surgery and, um, you know, most of the, and I wanted to actually do my experiment in myself in which um, I took myself off any anti-inflammatory so that all the signals could go crazy that there's some injury there. Uh, I took myself off the boot and get myself into motion so that the cells could be activated and uh, to stimulate my own circulating stem cells. So, so yeah, that didn't cost me a buck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nor did I tell my doctor what I was doing. <laughs> if I have a complete genome analysis and I find out that in the future I will have breast cancer. What do I do with that information? And second question, does UCLA, um, does this type of analysis and what department? This is exactly why 10 years ago the human genome, after it was discovered and analyzed, I did not as a scientist think it would be of much help because of questions, because of exactly that. In other words, it was predictive of some future event which may or may not happen, and therefore really of really little use, in fact, cause more stress than it was worth. So I would not recommend if I were to do that. On the other hand, it's now evolved to the point that when there is an illness or willness, that doing the human genome analysis actually which allows you then to identify the proteins that are affected as a result of that abnormality, 
of which you then can actually effect a change and make do what we call an actionable information. Because you know what you're attacking. Correct, because, and this is most of the, the surgeon in me, if you're going to do a test of which I could do nothing, don't do that test. <laughs> if you're going to do a test if you go, as, that, that actually allow you to actually change the direction of your treatment, you absolutely should do that test. So if you have a test that says, well, okay, well, maybe 20 years from now you can get diabetes, I'm not sure, other than what you should be doing, regardless of whether you have that test anyway, i.e. you'll have a hemoglobin A1C in your blood sugar and monitored in your well and look at your weight and your nutrition and your exercise. But I think the um, concept of the genome is really for treatment of illness. And that's where I, w I would recommend. And we're setting this up at St. John's, um, for cancer at least, at the John Wayne Cancer Research Institute. That's a cheap plug now for St. John's. <laughs> <laughs> this is fascinating but it's complicated. And given um, the political climate, um, it also has a sense of control and centralization. Um, and uh, given also the um, anti-science bias in, in some parts of the country, how are you going to explain this to ordinary people um, who uh, may find this so complicated and scary, and so w what could you be explaining to the to Washington that would get people on board? There's nothing central about this. We are not taking the data and putting any any central repository whatsoever. So the data exists at the doctor's office for the doctor between the doctor and the patient. So that's number one. So this is really care for the doctor, what we call a federated distributed network. That's exactly why we wanted to build this grid, which is an open source grid that allows information sharing in a very HIPAA secured way between doctor and patient. The, the, the centralization is merely the, the provision of supercomputers, which are very specialized machines that just does the processing and sends the data out immediately back in streams. And these streamers that we've created are open source free. So there's no uh, desire to create a repository of information on you or of you. Um, what this needs to be explained is 32% of patients in the United States are getting the wrong treatment for cancer. And I think if you know that, if people were to know that, and then within less than 10 months, we've taken 8,000 oncologists and through this machine learning tool, helped them create what are called decision support to go from 32% to zero, would you as a patient want to be working with one of those oncologists? It's probably the, it's not a scare tactic, but it's the realities of what we're trying to do. And then if you add to that the ability to actually monitor, create a monitoring system that proactively catches you before you go into heart failure and a nurse or a doctor comes to your home and actually captures that and reduces the readmissions to the hospital and keeps you in health rather than in disease is, is the other. So hopefully that's one way of us explaining it. And meetings like this, I suppose, is the first one I've had <laughs> uh, where we're actually talking about what we're doing um, will help explain some of this. And I'm wondering what healthcare facilities will look like in the future and the, what is the role of hospitals, the role of medical schools? Will they be 
wellness sinners as opposed to sinners of dramatic surgery. What do you see? Really, the medical schools of the future really is the integration of a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a physician, an en engineer, an economist. Um, what I see, what I envision, frankly, is that the hospitals are sites of tertiary care, uh, but really they are really areas of expertise. I mean, I think about, at least when I was a kid, right, in, in South Africa, the care that I would get is a doctor coming to the door with a, with a black bag and knocking on the door and, and taking care of that. I think we're going to have to revert back all the way to home care, where actually nurses and nurse practitioners uh, come all the way from home and into the clinic. And the doctor is incredibly well informed, but the doctor-patient is almost a priest-patient relationship because really the information sits up because there's so much information that it has to be driven by some of these supercomputers on a very personalized basis to the doctor on your behalf with regard where the patient is empowered. And I really feel so strongly that we need to create what I call patient empowerment, that the knowledge and information at the fingertips of the patient is as prevalent uh, or as, in, uh, as deep uh, as what the doctor would have. And then you'd obviously have the specialist doctor-patient relationship. That's, I sort of see the future of medicine. The, the medical school that we're launching is in partnership with an organization called the Mayo Clinic, which is starting a, a new branch of its medical school in Phoenix, where we are adding to that a school for the science of healthcare delivery, which is all these other things that Patrick is talking about uh, combined with the new way that the physicians from that uh, medical school will be, will be uh, educated. My name is Louis Davila. Uh, I own a software development company and I've been in the uh, healthcare IT business for a decade. Um, I want to find out a little more if you had to start from scratch with some of these companies and, and hardware that you're uh, going to be announcing in October. Uh, there's a lot of decision support uh, software already that helps physicians make um, better uh, evidence-based medicine choices. Uh, there's devices like Basis, Fitbit, and all of that. Uh, I won I'm wondering if you're working with them or if you had to create this whole uh, infrastructure, so to speak, on, uh, by yourself. And also, I kind of wonder understand a little bit more about why you believe your platform will succeed when other open source platforms have failed. Um, for example, Harvard um, has the smart platform, which while isn't as ambitious as what you're doing, um, still hasn't had any traction. You're making the assumption, I believe it's going to succeed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're I, hopeful. We're hopeful it's going to succeed. <laughs> we're trying to make this succeed. Um, the, first of all, what we're doing is very important to know. We're actually building something that's agnostic to any device. So we're not building devices for the sake of actually building devices. So the Fitbit, in fact, integrates with us directly. Um, so devices are like iPhones or phones, as you said. They, 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 they're tools. What was very more important was really the science of the decision, of how the decision is actually integrated, where you actually take... Um, so what we've done in terms of the decision support engine, we've integrated the National Cancer Institute, we integrated the oncologists, we integrated the literature, we integrated ongoing uh, computer science of the bioinformatics of the genomes, we created, um, so, so it's really the integration of information that is un totally unbiased, in which the only interest that we consider is that of the patient. 
So pharmaceutical data is unbiased from pharmaceuticals, unbiased from insurance company, unbiased from uh, anybody else other than the current information. So I think that's one of when we talk, talk about decision support, where the decision support really is decisions based on true evidence-based and what is evidence. And so that is, is why I think we will differentiate. There's really no agenda inside these decisions other than that in the interest of the patient. Thank you so much.